Hello and welcome to Play On, the Morgan Sports Law podcast. I am Lisa Jones, a lawyer at Morgan Sports Law, and I'm delighted to be joined today by two special guests. The first of those is Iris Lappendel. Iris is a former road racing cyclist and Dutch national road champion who has enjoyed a professional career spanning over 12 years. Iris is a designer and owner of the Apple brand Iris. Iris is also the co-founder and executive director of the Cyclist Alliance. Thank you for joining us, Iris. Hello. Our second guest is Rian Ravenscroft. Rian is a corporate and commercial lawyer with 15 years experience. Rian is the vice director of the Cyclist Alliance and supports riders through working with stakeholders like the UCI, teams and race organisers. Thank you for joining, Rian. Thank you for having me. So in this episode, we'll discuss a number of topics related to advancing the rights of female cyclists. This personally for me is an episode that I've been so excited about for some time as I've been following closely the work and the important initiatives that the Cyclists Alliance is pursuing for its members and for women cycling as a whole. So to begin and perhaps for the benefit of our listeners, Iris, can you please explain the history of the Cyclists Alliance and what the ongoing mission of the union is? Yes, of course I can do that. It started back in 2015 when I was still uh, a pro cyclist myself. At that time, I was elected by uh, my peers to serve on the uh, UCI Athletes Commission, which is an elected seat in the commission. And I think this, in combination with the the situation that, that I was in my team that year, which wasn't a great situation, that made me realize there wasn't any place to go for a female rider to seek help. So that was my personal uh, experience. And then because I was in that athletes commission, I got a lot of like questions and riders coming to me with their personal situation. And then I just realized, well, you know, we're, we're quite in a, in a difficult situation here and yeah, difficult to get that support. That actually stayed in the back of my head. And then in 2017, when I was just retired, I started this conversation again with Carmen Small and Gracie Elvin, and these like started as small conversations, but they turned into big ideas between us. And we first of all surveyed the peloton to see like what are the actual issues of our riders, and is there an appetite for a um, a female union? And there was a huge response, and yeah, that that's been the. The reason we started the, the Cyclist Alliance, it's been the foundation and, and it still very much is our connection with the, with the peloton. Yeah, I would say that the issues in our sport are quite unique, but we're also excited because we see there is such a big potential to make it maybe one of the, the greatest women's sport in the world. That excitement for the positive progress in our sport is yeah, why we thought we need to establish an association that represents the most important people in that sport, and that are the riders. So that's a little bit about the history and, yeah, about our ongoing mission. I think it's actually quite simple, but it's it's really big at the same time. We want 100% of riders to have a safe and stable economic environment and for all riders to feel their achievements are visible. And we do that by campaigning for uh, broader coverage and representation in sports media. In following on from that question, perhaps this might be one for Rian. Can you briefly explain the structure of the Cyclist Alliance and what, what its relations are with cycling teams and its members and, and organisations such as obviously the UCI? 
Yeah, so we're the only independent union at the moment operating to represent the professional female riders. We represent at the moment 170 members of the pro peloton, so it's a pretty substantial number and it is growing often. We represent the economic and employment interests. We give them access to legal advice and, and through our ethics office, we support them with claims that sort of impact their well-being and safety. So those are our key focus and, and how we help the riders. So we also have a rider council, which is a group of elected female riders who also kind of represent the interests of the peloton and liaise with us and, and feedback those interests. We liaise with teams and we engage with them. But they have their own separate union that, that lobbies and represents their interests. As I said before, we're independent, so we're wholly independent from the UCI and we lobby them for change. The riders are pretty much at the heart of everything that we do. And, and that, I think, is something that's so important and can't be understated, is the independence. And, and that's something that you, you, do, you do see this, this topic coming up again and again. So, I mean, the first area that I'd like to discuss with you both is supporting women cycling as a whole. So whether that's through enhanced regulations, legal support for riders, or, or any other means that w- women's cycling can be supported. So let's start, I think, with the UCI. It probably makes sense to, to, to begin there. So the UCI has, in recent years, introduced regulations, so notably from 2020. It's published agendas, such as Agenda 2022, which addresses in part of, obviously, the, the larger agenda, women's cycling. So these changes generally cover a variety of areas to include the race days, the tiered event structure with UCI Women's World Tour and UCI Pro Series events being required to abide by certain organisational standards, so notably relating to television coverage. There's also been a move to equalise Olympic Games quotas from the Paris 2024 Olympic Games. So for reference, by Tokyo standards in the road race, there are 130 spots for the men's elite road race compared to 67 spots for the elite women's road race. Whereas in Paris, it has been published that there will be 90 riders in both events. There's also been mandated minimum salaries for women world team riders, which are set to increase gradually up to 2023, which will match um, UCI men's professional continental teams and other employment related aspects such as insurance and maternity leave. And then on the team side, there's been the creation of the two tier structure. So with women's world teams and UCI women's continental teams. And there also has been and will be some amendments to the license structures for teams, which will be based on rankings, to name a few. So the broad question, I think, is do the changes that we're seeing go far enough to ensure a safe and an equal working environment for female cyclists? So that's a broad question. So I think maybe to begin with and maybe to help set the background to our discussion, what sort of environment do you think is needed from the outset to foster equality, growth and development for the women's peloton? And is this reliant on better regulatory protection from the top, so from the UCI? I think, first of all, it's always positive to see the progress that's been made. And it has been made in areas that we've actively lobbied in, like the minimum salary, maternity leave. And I think our surveys have been quite uh, instrumental for that, to actually show the current state of women's cycling in the past few years. But we should also know that most of these uh, regulation changes are only applied to uh, women's world tour teams, as you just explained. 
which are currently only nine teams. So that's just a small a proportion of the women's field. There are 49 continental teams, just to yeah put it in perspective. And these continental teams don't have any of those minimum standards. Yeah, I, I would say if, if it's enough or do we need better protection from, from the UCI? I think most of all, we see very much, in my opinion, from the UCI, a top-down approach. So they're very focused on the front end of the sport. Yes, the minimum salaries and maternity leave and all these improvements are really great. But better regulations isn't, isn't the answer. So the regulations also, they need to be applied accordingly. If there is a breach of le- regulation by, by teams or by race organizers, then they also should be held accountable for that. And we really lobby for more transparency from the side of the UCI as well. But I think most of all, uh, to foster growth and equality, there needs to be not a top-down, but a bottom-up approach. So there needs to be a real vision for the development of women's sport and not just looking at the front end of the sport and a world tour. And uh, yeah, I think that's a little bit what is lacking currently. So there definitely needs to be more attention for the for the development as a whole. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, you you do see that, and and sometimes you do see that in lots of sports where there is this focus on the top, and and you don't realize that that there's so there's so many things that need to be changed. In terms of the UCI's current and proposed reforms, so we're acknowledging that these reforms are are targeted to to, to the World Tour. Do you think for some riders that this will this will help achieve equality for those riders in? Well, equality relative to to the men's world tour? I think that there's a couple of points there, I think, as well, and and this kind of references back what Iris was just saying, but we need to have a bit more detail in those reforms. Like The progress is is great, and we're happy to see that these changes are being made, but we have to have a bit more detail, and we need a bit more of accountability around that as well, and like, what's the impact if people don't comply with those rules and their regulations, and how are those regulations enforced across the board? And again, sort of going back to the world tour aspect, that these changes will help level it out for those teams, but it may, it may go some way to achieving equality from a world tour level, but then it increases the disparity with the continental level teams. So we kind of think in general it needs to be a bit more of a vision to develop the women's sport as a whole and, and not just focus on, on the women's tour aspect. And we feel there needs to be a bit more accountability around those reforms. And there's other stakeholders as well that have to play their part it, like Iris is saying, it's not just about the regulations. You know, we need to make sure that races are having adequate TV coverage. We need to make sure that that's being broadcast. And we need to make sure that the, the women's races and the women's stories are being heard about just as much as the men. So it doesn't just kind of relate to regulations. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and well, I think we can, we can come to that certainly in, in, in more detail. I certainly have some, some questions and I'd be keen to hear your views on a few related topics. Iris, you mentioned that you've been lobbying for certain changes. Do you think the stage we're at right now, do you think that some of these changes have been brought on by increased rider unity, activism and effective representation? Yeah, I definitely think that has helped a lot. And maybe it's not something the UCI would like openly recognize, but I think, uh, yeah, we do see that... uh, a strong voice from riders and having them all asking and advocating for the same thing that is really active that is really uh, important yes 
And I actually think it's one of the, the great things of the women's peloton that they're actually very united in their uh, ask. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like like I say, it's it's been I think that these changes do do don't come about by accident. And it is from the joint efforts of lots of people that you do result in, in actual change as opposed to sort of meaningless change. So the developments we uh, related and are focused on on the top being the women's world teams. So what do you think this effect has on the development of women's cycling? So I'm thinking of opportunities for developing and encouraging young riders to enter the sport. What effect do you think has it on the overall attractiveness of the sport and the feasibility of career in professional cycling? So as we just talked about, like because that focus is so much on a world tour, I think those will definitely benefit from these developments. Like you say, as a young rider coming into the sport, you immediately step into the elite ranks. There's not like a men's cycling, a U23 tier, for example, or a race series. So immediately you're racing against Olympic and world champions who are earning a very decent salary currently, which is great. But if you combine that with, you know, being very young, coming into the sport with a increasing level and then sometimes ending up in a team which is not so professional and the working conditions are pretty tough that that is definitely a reason for as we see is, is a is a reason for a lot of young riders to leave the sport early because of these disappointments and because of the hard time they have and i would say that's even more for riders that co- that are coming from non traditional cycling countries or outside of Europe. So Mm -hmm. for them, it's even a bigger step to take and even a harder trajectory to go through. And I think we definitely have to think about, like, if we want to grow the sport, again, we have to look at making that step, getting into the elite level of cycling a little bit easier. Yeah, there really needs to be the better pathway into cycling. Maybe the answer could be a, like a U23 league or uh, an, an extra division next to continental and world tour teams. But I think we should also focus more on the race program because it's very heavy weighted now on the world tour program again. So there are a lot of continental teams, but then there is not so much opportunity to race at this level. Yeah. Bottom line is for riders coming into the sport, they also need a stable environment, a safe environment and the opportunity to race. That's that's the most important to develop yourself. Yeah, and I think that's 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 so important. And especially it was really interesting what you had to say about riders entering the sport from from countries that aren't aren't the sort of the traditional countries where 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 riders do enter the sport so i'm thinking the netherlands belgium france spain these are all countries where it's more of a natural step whereas if you do want to globalize cycling then you you need to be looking at the the global sport as opposed to only the the very eurocentric base and and what you say about the under 23 racing that's is so important in order to see that platform by which you can develop as a rider so I think moving on, we, we mentioned it briefly earlier, but moving on to sort of other ways that women's cycling can be supported. So we know that when women's cycling is given a magical platform, viewership related coverage in the media demonstrates significant demand from fans. So I'm thinking of so many examples, but for instance, the recent record-breaking edition of the cycling magazine Ruler 
which was a women's special, the fastest selling edition in the publication's 15 year history. Just last week, we saw cycling supporters unite regarding the discrepancy in prize money between men's and women's races, which saw a crowdfunding campaign result in a prize fund of, I think, over 26,000 euros for the top five finishers of Strade Bianchi. Another example being last year at the Giro Rosa, where we saw fans, I remember it clearly, fans taking to social media, demanding coverage. Fans wanted to watch the racing. They were desperate for real, equal coverage. And as a result of the lack of coverage, the race was downgraded to a two-pro series race. So broadcasters and the media clearly play a significant role in making available the sport generally. Do you think the UCI could do more than mandating a set amount of coverage? Kind of going back to what we said earlier as well, that there's one aspect which is the regulatory side, which you can sit and wait for people to make change. Or there's the other aspect other stakeholders can do to drive change. You know, the UCI just sets the bare minimum that needs to be done. There's nothing to say that you have to adhere to the minimum. And people could simply, other stakeholders, broadcasters, sponsors, they can push on and drive the change that they want to see. And I think the the recent examples that you mentioned, especially coming from the fans as well, is demonstrating that there is a demand there and there's an audience which is actually underserved so the stakeholders can sort of step up and say well we commit to giving more coverage because we know that the audience is there and we're going to make that investment because we've got bigger vision for women cycling than is being done and is is set out in the regulations and I, I think that there has been quite a lot of public votes of confidence in women cycling recently which has come from the fans which has come from team sponsors and, and teams because there are two teams recently um, that have introduced so Trek Segafredo and Bike Exchange which have raised their minimum salaries to be equivalent to the men's. Nowhere in the regulations does it mandate that that should happen but they've done it because they believe that that should be the right thing for women cycling. Other stakeholders can be driving change. We can all do that. We don't have to sit around and wait. But then secondly, should the UCI be, be mandating and asking for more? Yeah, I think I think they should. The request for TV coverage um, for the women's, the requirements is less than it is for the men's. And and that to me doesn't really make any sense, especially if there's people calling for that audience. We recently, you know, Strada Bianchi was on and there was a huge outcry there around the fact that there wasn't equal prize money and a massive fan campaign behind it. But you still only got to watch like the last 30 kilometers of the race. There just is a bit of a discrepancy here. and, And that can be fixed either by regulation or it can be fixed by other stakeholders just stepping up and trying to push the sport forward. Yeah. And do you think downgrading, so the decision to downgrade the Giro is it? Do you think that's that's the sort of right way that the UCI should play it? Or should there should there be some some other way to sanction or or promote broadcasters and, 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 and race organizers to do to do to do the right thing and to do what, what the fans want ultimately? We were saying before that you have to be held accountable if you don't meet the minimum requirements and as I just said, most of those requirements around women's cycling are the bare minimum, especially compared to the men. So, so yes, if you're not stepping up and saying that this is what we're going to do and we're going to give the coverage to them, women's cycling will only survive and expand and increase if it's given the same level of coverage. So, yeah, I do think that somebody should be held accountable and there should be sanctions and other race organisers need to see that this is what you should be doing. Do you have anything to add to that, Iris? No, I, I agree with Rian. I mean, it's always a shame to see um, a race being put on a lower level, but I think it's also been a good statement. And I also, in general, think that 
yes, these regulations are already the bare minimum. And especially with Gira Rosa, which is a race, which it's not only about race coverage, but it has also its own issues by the way it's organized or not organized and the safety around the race, etc. So I think it's good that uh, race organizers are held accountable. But at the same time, I mean, it should also be a little bit of a joint effort to develop the sport and uh, and the coverage. Yeah, just putting down regulations and sometimes enforcing them is, yeah, you know, it, it feels a little bit like we could do it so much better if we like join forces all together in on this and think about maybe more innovative ways to help raise organizers to to do a provide coverage for example yeah so it's maybe also a little bit of a lost opportunity yeah and i mean like i think taking one of the points that you raised there brian i think the impact of teams like Czech segafredo team bike exchange publicly announcing commitments to equal minimum salaries which is above and beyond what is mandated by the UCI's rules in 2023. I think that's a significant statement and, and it does show that the change doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to come from the UCI, but it certainly should, in my view, be setting the bar high then for, for teams to, to do with that as, as they can, really. So I think moving on to perhaps another area. So adequate legal support can offer security and protection to riders how can we ensure that riders are adequately protected contractually so for instance in their riding contracts and perhaps associated sponsorship contracts so this is an area that's particularly important to the tca and is is a huge part of what we do at the moment as well and and we have this general belief that if we help empower the peloton to request and negotiate the same sort of standards, the same sort of rights, that we will collectively help them sort of bring up the professionalization of the sport and protect their legal interests and their legal rights by giving them all the knowledge that they need to know what they should be asking for and how they sort of redress that imbalance of power that there is between teams and or sponsors or whoever they're contracting with and the riders. So We've been doing that by trying to give them access to as much information as possible and, and put that information out with them and try and explain that in a straightforward and practical and commercial terms as we can to demystify it a little bit. So, um, you know, that's that's quite a lot of the work that we do and also give them access to specialist legal support when they need it. Yeah, I've read about the, the contract management platform that, that you offer riders. Can you explain more about that and, and the ways in which you're making it easier for women to have access to, to legal support where required? Yeah, so what we've done with the, the contract management platform is, is look at a lot of the key issues that would impact riders, the key asks that they should be requesting for in their contract. You know, we were aware that, I think it was, I'll, I'll check the stat, but it was something like 85% of riders were signing a contract without any negotiation, without any legal representation. And if that contract is in itself totally ineffective and or worthless, that's not doing anything to protect the riders and it's not doing anything to protect the peloton. So we've tried to pull together a lot of resources that set things out as clearly and as simply as possible and say to people, this should be the bare minimum standard you should look for in your contract. We've done that by sort of giving a red flag system to it to highlight key areas. We then have agents who look at it for on a pro bono basis and will advise the riders um, if there's any issues with that contract and whether or not they should sign it. And then we also highlight the areas where we say, actually, don't try and negotiate this one on your own or don't try and deal with this by yourself. We've got some specialist support. So it's just 
as we were saying, like you were saying before about transparency, it's just trying to make the process as transparent as possible and just try and give them the knowledge they have that they feel empowered that they can negotiate. And that sort of redresses the balance of power a little bit, I think. It's also a lot of like fact sheets and on, on topics like insurance, for example, if you're in a World War team or in a continental team, what kind of insurance should I have myself? What kind of insurance should my team provide? A lot of things that writers often only think about when something happens. And we just try to make them aware, like think about it before you sign a contract. These are the questions that you have to ask when you're negotiating a contract. These are just important things to to think about. And yeah, that's the contract, that's insurance, that's also often uh, immigration visas, uh, especially now with Brexit, we're doing a lot of that work. So yeah, it's uh, salary guidelines. I think it's it's a really important one. Like we ask, we do a big rider survey every year, and we ask the riders what team they're in and what their salary is. And this gives us a lot of information on uh, on the salaries that are paid in the team. So since there is no indication at all in continental teams, especially if you go into a contract negotiation, and you can ask us beforehand, like, hey, I'm having a, a chat with team this or that, like what's the salaries that are paid in that team, then at least they have a little bit of uh, some basis to go from. And I think that's already super empowering for them. Yeah, I mean, it seems that you're breaking down the, the, the barriers that, that people may have. And 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 sometimes the, the contracts can be complicated and it might not be things that you are familiar with. So I think that, that breaking down barriers seems and making easily digestible legal advice to members is is invaluable. I mean, there does seem to be increasing awareness for the need to ensure that contracts do offer legal security, as opposed to, I think, that the minimum, the minimum standard that, that is that is set by regulations. And this information sharing is 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 so important and it and it does it certainly seems that it empowers everybody. Moving on from there, so I'd like to talk to you both about abuse in cycling. So we recently learned of the partially retroactive suspension of Patrick Van Gansen, the former team director and manager of the HealthMate Cycle Live team, issued by the UCI Disciplinary Commission. The sanction was for two years and seven months. Concerning a case that was brought to the UCI Ethics Commission's attention more than three years ago, so the case concerned Mr. Van Gansen's actions to riders, where riders came forward to report abuse and harassment towards them, including sexual remarks, verbal aggression, body shaming, and mental abuse over a period of number of years. So the case has shown some quite serious shortcomings in the UCI's current handling of such cases, to include the lack of standing by victims, which means that once a report has been filed, they're effectively in the dark and reliant on press releases and other publicly available information on the, the case that they've come forward so, so bravely to report. The lack of time limits for investigations, the lack of provisional suspensions, lack of communication, lack of ongoing support. And in terms of sanctions, it's notable that the sanction is far less than other sanctions. So just if we look at anti-doping sanctions, your biggest starting point is four years or eight years or even life, depending depending on the circumstance of the case. So it's concerning, I think, to, to, to me and, and I'm sure many others that, that Mr. Van Gansen 
may manage a women's cycling team again after the 31st of December 2022. So we've we've seen that the, the Cyclist Alliance has set out some detailed recommendations which have been sent to the UCI and the CPA, which are publicly available on your website, and we can provide a link to, to those recommendations. Do you expect the handling of cases of this nature to change as a result? And what do you consider the most important lessons that not only the UCI, but the UCI and other stakeholders can take away from, from this? I would say the most important lesson, especially when you sum up all these points about like lack of communication, etc. You think, yeah, maybe the UCI is just not capable of handling these kind of cases, which are, I mean, yeah, we've been involved in this case from the beginning and, and it was a big case. It was quite a lot to handle. And I think it was the first case of this scale that the UCI Ethics Commission ever had since they started. So Probably for them, it was also maybe they were not prepared to handle this. So I think, yeah, what we could learn from, from this is definitely that, first of all, maybe we should think about is the, is the UCI or, or the UCI Ethics Commission capable of handling this? And maybe we should even ask, should they or should it be moved to a third uh, independent party, which is something we have also advised the UCI to do, because it's it are really difficult things and you see that in other working areas or federations it's sometimes handled this way with an independent party but i think the most important lesson is that the riders their voices should be heard and that they should be taken seriously in the process and that the process should be more transparent yeah and it could definitely be a lot more efficient just going back to your point about whether we expect the handling of cases of this nature to change like we have a dedicated ethics officer who has experience in this. We've built this really detailed recommendation on the back of that experience to try and improve the process. We've made the results of that public and we've passed it to the UCI because transparency is the heart of everything that we do. And that opportunity is now with the UCI to respond and adopt these changes. You know, it, It's done in the spirit of trying to make the process better and to encourage it and for the benefit of our sport and riders as a whole. So, yes, I would hope it does change as a, as a consequence. Yeah, and you think to the UCI's benefit as well, to improve their processes would, you'd think, would be one of the foremost of the, their, their considerations as well. Thank you both for your, for your answers. The last area that I'd like to talk to you about is matters concerning athletes' rights. So athletes often have the greatest platform when they are united, when they are aware. And this is a trend that we've, we've, already, <laughs> we've already discussed and we see it across all sports. And it's an area of major criticism for certain organisations for not adequately protecting and promoting athlete rights, because ultimately without the athletes, there isn't a sport. So it's something that is in, in absolutely everybody's interest. So, I mean, in cycling specifically, so I've seen many riders have taken to social media to express unhappiness with certain organizations, to express their discomfort when they feel that a union or governing body doesn't adequately support, represent and listen to them. And there is a feeling of, of this lack of, lack of touch between, between the athletes and those who, who represent and should be advancing their rights. So one example of this is rider safety. So 
the UCI's latest rule changes, which include a range of different changes coming in force, include things like banning of certain positions, updates to the requirements that certain race organisers will have to will have to adapt. So relating to barriers at the end of a, of a stage, so or, or a one day race. So these have been met with criticism by many, and there does seem on the outside to be an us versus them type scenario happening. And you do see riders mobilising and becoming invocal. But one thing that for me is so important is making sure that that energy that's produced by being vocal actually results in changes for the better, as opposed to just just noise. It's great that we can talk about these things, but we need it to result in actual change. From your perspective as an organisation that is run by former and current advisors, what do you find is the most effective way to ignite change and engage and positively represent your members? Yeah, I think most of all, being really close to your members. And like you say, we are an organization formed by former and current riders. We have a very direct line with our members. So every uh, we don't work with like national, we work with direct membership. Every member has a direct vote in our organization. It's pretty easy, I think, for them to contact us I mean, women cycling also isn't a huge sport. So with the the with our team, we know probably seventy or eighty percent of of the peloton, and they know us. So that's really helpful. But I think we've also built a structure with rider council and a team ambassador program. So every team has a dedicated uh, like ambassador that we are in touch with. But especially that rider council, which is elected by our members, and we meet with them every six weeks or two months. It's just a perfect way to interact with the peloton and to know exactly what is going on, to get feedback, but also to get ideas. Because I think that's something that we, which is actually the fun part of, of running a union, is that these riders are all really engaged. They want to be part of their own future. So they also come up with ideas and plans and feedback. So And they talk about it with each other. So I think that's, that's really most important to make them feel part of that change. And to make them also realize they are that change, because you said it in just when you answer this question, like there is no race without the riders. But I think actually a lot of riders don't realize that, that they are the key player in this whole part. And they just still think like, oh, we have to be so grateful for this or that. But actually with, without them, there's no there's no race. So, yeah, we have to together build that confidence uh, with them. Yeah, and I think also just communicating in, in a way that riders understand. So we use WhatsApp, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we do webinars. We, we try to make things interactive. We always respond really quickly in an understandable language, in a practical way. It's all about trust. You know, they have to trust us and then they have to trust that we, we can do the work for them. Refreshing to see that the communication, I think, is, is so important and that part of not only representing your members, but listening to your members and knowing the, the causes that you should be pursuing and perhaps the causes that your members that have have less of a less of a focus on. So what I mean in terms of the past, like what has been the biggest challenges for you since since setting up the Cyclist Alliance? What what do you think have been like the greatest challenges or has it all been plain sailing? <laughs> I don't want to talk about the UCI all the time, but I think the greatest challenge really is to deal with the with with the UCI. 
that's the simple question like it's it's okay. like yeah like, like we've talked and just explained how we work and try to be really directly and responsive etc and that's that's not really the experience we have with the UCI and I think maybe also again when we talked about the Giro Rosa for example I think a lot of stakeholders are kind of scared for maybe unions or having a very strong rider representation and you know for us it's really not about being a troublemaker it's really about building the sport together so we definitely also yeah kind of said that the UCI is a little bit stubborn in working with the riders yeah our aim is to grow the sport and for riders to be involved in and benefit from that growth that's where i think we play a good good role in advocating for them yeah yeah, absolutely. And and the, the unique insights that, that, that you have in, in day-to-day discussions and, and the connections that you have with riders is is so invaluable. And, and that, to me, is is one of the ways that the sport can, can grow. In terms of the future, so what are the immediate priorities for you over the next 12 months? I guess the, the main name is for us to continue to represent and advocate for the incredible athletes in, in women's cycling. We've got various points and steps that we'd like to, that we've been lobbying for, that we'd like to be implemented. And, and you can have a look on our website for all of those, but they relate to sort of basic economic standards that we would look for with regards to paid vacation leave, expenses paid, insurance, all, all these sort of things that you would expect to see in a normal working environment. We have quite a lot of priorities over the next 12 months. It's, it's always very busy. We want to make sure that there's safe racing and proper application of COVID protocols. If, if people are coming back racing still in this pandemic environment, that's obviously now key. We're assisting a lot with visas, especially post-Brexit. There's a lot of riders that are having sort of cross-border European issues, so we're helping with that. And we have been advocating for the appointment of an independent third-party safety inspector for races. That's going back to the point we've previously spoken about with regards to rider safety. And then continuing to enhance the services we offer, I think, to, like I said, we're trying to give riders the information they need to successfully advocate for themselves. So I think the overall focus is better working conditions and, and making sure that we've got that emphasis as well on the women's continental teams. We don't want it to just be on the world teams, as Iris was explaining right at the start. There's progress that has been made. We mentioned that at the start, and that's always great news. There's still a lot to be done, and, and women's sport is, is riding a real wave at the moment, and women's cycling can really benefit from that if we all work together to take the opportunity. Absolutely. Iris, do you have anything to add? No, I think maybe sometimes I say like the most important for me, if riders come to us with a question or, you know, things that they n- normally would never ask or would just accept because they think that's part of the job. And now they ask like, hey, can we do something about it? Or is this normal? I think the fact that they now always know we have this organization that has our back for me is really the most important and already that we've achieve that for me is one of the most important things of the of the past few years i'm really proud of what we've done with a really small but very dedicated team of people the work already done is amazing and and i'm sure there's there's so much there's so much more to come and 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 riders are, are fortunate to be supported by such a such a great union so i think i have one last question that i'll preempt from our listeners so to join as a member of the Cyclist Alliance or to support the Cyclist Alliance in any other way for non-riders or for anyone just interested in the work that you do, what, what can people do and how can they support you? 
we rely on, on donations and independent funding to survive. Um, like Ira said, there's there's a very dedicated team, a lot of whom give up their time for free, but there is still some costs that are essential with running an organisation and or obtaining specialist advice. That donations and funding is really important to us. So anybody can visit our website. They can become a supporter member. They can sponsor a rider member. You'll have heard some of the figures around a rider's salary in the in the peloton. And so sometimes even affording our membership fee is difficult. So you can sponsor a rider. We're also looking for some more full-time sort of commercial partners as well. So if you're working in an organisation that wants to advance women's sport, is interested in representing women's rights in that sport, then please get in touch. I also think it isn't always just about somebody giving giving money to support. You know, that's not everybody's in that position to do so. But what you can also do is you can get behind women's sport and women's cycling. You can watch it, engage with it, speak up about inequality and, and really like support these incredible female athletes in the peloton. We mentioned this earlier about the success recently about crowdfunding and what fans' calls and coverage should do. And this impact made stakeholders be held accountable. It was public and I think that was really useful fans were lifting up the riders and were lending them their collective voices and I think that that's a really important way to support the TCA our work and the professional riders that's perfect thank you thank you Rian okay and on that note I think we can wrap things up so thank you so much to Iris and and Rian for joining me today and being so generous with their time For analysis and articles on athletes' rights issues, please go to our website, which is at www.morgansl.com. If you're interested in joining our mailing list or if there are any topics that you'd like to see addressed in a future podcast, please email us at podcasts at morgansl.com. Finally, please connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook for articles, updates and news. We hope that you enjoyed listening and that you will join us for future episodes of Play On.